0: Well, we're in Mark 6 again tonight as we were on Sunday. On Sunday, we were looking at Jesus' miracle of feeding the 5,000 in Mark 6. And we saw there in that story that it's not just an expression of Jesus' compassion and his care for hungry followers, but the miracle itself and the language used to describe it ties into massive biblical themes, threads, categories, ideas. We said that Jesus feeding the 5,000 suggests a new exodus, a new beginning for God's people, God doing something new, a new Moses, a new prophet. There's a prophet to come, Jesus is it. He's like Moses, but far better. He's the shepherd, the true shepherd of God's people. Those promises of old, of God himself coming and shepherding his people because the shepherds or the priests and leaders of, of Israel throughout the Old Testament so often were such poor shepherds. God himself will come and shepherd his people in truth and righteousness. We also saw that the feeding of the 5,000 is like a feast, a banquet feast. It looks like it's just survival but it's more than that, Jesus acts like a banquet host. And it points ahead to the fact that Jesus himself is a feast, a banquet. He's the bread from heaven. He's the living water. And he's coming again to bring his people to himself in a new heaven, a new earth, where they shall feast. And they shall feast forevermore. Well, it's the next scene in Mark six that we'll look at tonight. And it's a scene, as we saw on Sunday, that's clearly connected to the story of feeding the 5,000. It's that famous story of Jesus walking on the water. And that doesn't sound related at all to feeding 5,000. Feeding 5,000 is a big group on land. And then we're going to see a scene with the disciples, just 12 of them, in a boat. And then Jesus shows up. It doesn't seem related at all, but we'll read it. And in the last verse, we'll learn from Mark uh, that there is a connection that we should note between these two stories, even if at first it's ambiguous to us. So, Mark 6, let's read starting in verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. Well, one of the things we should notice about this passage just structurally is that Mark tells the events of the story in sort of a back-and-forth way, back-and-forth between the disciples and then Jesus. The disciples do something, and then Jesus does something. So first, the disciples depart. Verse 45, the disciples depart. He made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, and then he dismissed the crowd. These will happen, at least these early ones here that we'll look at. These points are going to happen quickly. The disciples depart. Then, secondly, Jesus prays. Verses 46 and 47 say that he left them and he went up to a mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. So here's the setting. Jesus and the disciples are now separate, two different places. They're out on the sea just as he commanded them. We know a storm is coming, and he's praying. He sent them out, he's praying, and really he's waiting, isn't he? We'll come back to that in just a second here. The third thing is that the disciples struggle. He saw that they were making headway painfully. That's awkward wording, isn't it? Making headway painfully literally it's they were straining at the oars that's pretty awkward too but at least you get it straining at the oars for the wind was against them this isn't nearly as threatening as what we saw with them in the boat in the sea back in chapter 4 there they were about to perish because the waves kept coming in to the boat But nevertheless, this is a storm. It's difficult. They're not making progress. And it would seem that it goes on for quite some time. It was the fourth watch of the night. This is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. This has been a long time. Remember, this just left off from a scene where Jesus fed the 5,000. And there it said it was late, but it was late for supper time. It was late for supper time. And then after Jesus fed the 5,000... It's then that they departed, and, and uh, the disciples went into, these, to, into a boat, and, and now it's the fourth watch. It's after 3 a.m. It's been a long time that they have been making headway painfully. Again, let's come back to this thing of Jesus waiting. He sent them away on a boat. He prayed, and he waited. And we've seen this before, where Jesus waits he goes slow. He waits sometimes in order to create a powerful, revelatory moment. He's going to reveal something about himself in a more powerful way, more revealing way than if he hadn't waited. He waits. Remember back in chapter 4 where the disciples were in that storm, in the boat, Jesus slept and he waited in his sleep. It wasn't an accidental snooze. It wasn't, oh, sorry guys, I didn't know, I didn't know. No, I mean, he knew exactly what he was doing, going to sleep. He knew how long he was sleeping and what was going on around him, I'm sure, as he was there in the boat. He waits until they're about to perish and they can't believe that he's still sleeping. That's when he wakes up. Or in chapter 5, when Jairus' daughter is about to die. But on the trek back to Jairus' house with Jesus, Jesus takes time for a hemorrhaging woman. She's sick, but she's not about to die. And because of this, this stalling, the daughter of Jairus does die. But that's okay, because Jesus raises her from the dead. It's all according to plan. And so here in our passage tonight, Jesus sends the disciples away in a boat into a coming storm. Once again, he knows the weather. He knows exactly what he's sending them into and what's coming. He goes away to pray, and he waited until the wind was against him. They were were hard on the oars, and he saw them. And it's only then that Jesus passes by. That's the fourth thing. Then Jesus passes by. I know that's a ridiculous way to talk about a guy who's not in a boat, who's coming near you in a boat, that he passes by. But that's actually what it says. He passed by them. In verse 48, it was the fourth watch of the night. He came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. Now the walking on the sea part. That is amazing, but we know what it's saying, right? We don't struggle with the language. We know what it's saying. He's walking on the water, even if we don't understand the physics of it. But he meant to pass them by. What does that mean? There are all kinds of different interpretations of this little phrase, I think I counted nine in the commentaries I looked at today. Nine different interpretations. I will spare you the eight interpretations that I don't think are right. I'll tell you what I think this means when it says he meant to pass by them. Obviously, it has something to do with proximity by them. But it also has a theological implication. Remember that story where Moses... Asks God to show him his glory. Exodus 33 and 34. Eventually the Lord passed by him. The Lord revealed the backside of the tail end of his glory. And Moses got a peek of it. The Lord passed by him. It's one of those phrases that rings in the ears of faithful, biblically biblically literate Jews. In Jesus' time, passed by. It's also in 1 Kings 19 with Elijah, with a J. The Lord passed by him. It's a unique little phrase, passed by. It's when God shows up in glory and reveals himself powerfully and intimately. Jesus meant to pass by them. So if you wondered, when we first read this, he meant to pass by them. If you wondered, does he mean that he didn't go directly to them, even though they were, they were in great distress? He passed by them, he like went near them, and then kept going? Yeah, you got that right. That's probably what it means. But it's not because he's trying to trick them. It's not like, I'm almost here for the rescue, like your friend who, you know, goes with the car a little bit ways, you go to get in, and then he goes a little bit further, and you go to get in, and he goes a little bit further, and he's not doing one of those. He's not trying to trick them, but, but he is trying to reveal himself to them. He's trying to show his glory. He passes by them as he walks on the sea. Fifth, the disciples freak out. They freak out, don't they? They saw him walking on the sea and they thought it was a ghost and cried out for they all saw him and were terrified. They didn't think it was Jesus' ghost. They didn't think Jesus was dead. They just saw some guy walking on the water. Remember, it's three in the morning, four in the morning, it's dark. They can't make out that it's Jesus, no doubt, at least not yet. And so they... So because they see a guy walking on the water and guys don't walk on water, people don't walk on water, they presume that this must be some sort of aberration, some sort of ghost. And they cried out. They shrieked. This is the same word used for the the sound that people make when Jesus tears a demon out of them. They cry out. These were grown men. These were tough fishermen, and they were terrified. Sixth, then Jesus comforts. He comforts them. In verse 50 in the middle there, it says, But immediately he spoke to them and said three things Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart. Be heartened. It is I that's all he needs to say it is I They know the voice They know who it is do not be afraid there's no reason to fear I'm the one who's the rescue I'm salvation I I have omnipotent power as you're slowly slowly learning and then the storm is calmed he got into the boat verse 51 and the wind ceased here he doesn't rebuke the wind it's just him getting into the boat he doesn't need to rebuke the wind it it knows what it's supposed to do, or he's told it in his mind what it needs to do, and it, it ceases. Again, we have to remember we've been here before. We've been at least somewhere quite similar before. Jesus was in the boat with the disciples before when they were in even, an even greater storm. And after he calmed the wind and the waves, they were even more afraid. And they asked, who then is this that the wind and the sea obey him? Well, how will they respond this time? This is take two. Seventh, the disciples wonder. They wonder. Wonder is probably too soft of a word here. It says they were utterly astounded. But even the word astounded, we have to kind of pick at that and think about what it means. I've noted a couple of times in our study of Mark so far that a lot of people are amazed by Jesus. A lot of people marvel at him. They're astounded by him. And I've said before that both in English and in the Greek words behind these words, they can mean different things depending on their context in usage. It might help to think of the difference between the words impressed and confounded. Impressed and confounded. So here's the difference. Imagine that next Sunday, week 14 of the NFL, imagine that Peyton Manning steps back, throws a 70-yard pass, which I think would be a record, A 70-yard pass to a guy in the end zone who's covered by three other guys, and it slips through all their hands and lands directly in the one spot it could have landed in in his own player's hand, and, and, and they win. It's a touchdown. We would be astounded. We'd be amazed. We would be impressed. I mean, we thought this Peyton Manning was good before. But a 70-yard pass, the guy with the neck problems, he threw a 70-yard pass? We'd marvel. But imagine that Manning celebrated that touchdown, that win, by then elevating himself 50, 50 feet into the air and then diving down into the dirt and drilling through the ground like you've seen Superman do. At least in the original Superman, and then he he, he dove down to the fifty-yard line, but came out at the end zone, and then flew back up in the air, and then he grabbed an F sixteen up there, and he rode it for a while, and then he rode clouds like it was a skateboard half pipe or something, and then just blew them all out of the way in the clear sky. Now we would marvel. We'd be astonished. We would be afraid. We would be confused. We would be confounded. We would be stupefied. We'd be freaked out. We don't want our best NFL players uh, doing that kind of stuff, right? Let's keep that in the movies. Like, what do you what do you do with this guy now? Is he safe or not safe? Is he good or not? What if he goes bad? Do we got a a guy who's just as strong who can balance him out? I don't know. You'd freak out, wouldn't you? So, you don't want a Jesus who's just impressive. He's not just impressive, as the disciples are learning. If you want a Jesus who will simply impress you, I hope you soon see that he will not be so domesticated. People are impressive. Jesus is freaking people out. But neither did Jesus come to confuse and to confound. And that's what these disciples are doing. They're responding with utter astonishment. They're utterly astounded at the fact that Jesus can walk on the water. They've seen him calm a storm. They've seen him still waves. They didn't know he could walk on the water This word here, utterly astounded. Well, that same language is used of what Jesus' family thought of him back in chapter 3. Remember, his family said that he is out of his mind. Well, Mark is now describing the disciples' reaction in chapter 6 with the same language. They are out of their minds. They don't believe, and yet they don't know what to believe. Why don't they believe? Why don't they believe? Well, we could answer that a few different ways, a few different theological ways. Mark offers two explanations for their astounding disbelief. Verse 52, For they did not understand about the loaves, the feeding of the 5,000. Remember, that story ended with no reaction. Not from the crowd, not from the disciples. It's unusual. I wonder if it's because they didn't understand. What did they not understand about the loaves? Well, everything we talked about last Sunday, insert last Sunday's sermon right here. That's where it goes. Everything we talked about is what they don't understand. What we tried to understand together last Sunday about the loaves is what they don't understand. And it's not just the loaves that they don't understand. Again, remember, this is building. You've got the miracles that happened before the storm at the sea in chapter 4. And there Jesus calms the storm and they say, Who then is this that can do that? And that question began to, got, it began to be answered even further from there on out. Chapter 5. Remember, there... Jesus' power over thousands of demons is shown. And then Jesus' power over incurable disease is shown simply by a woman touching his robe. A woman who's helpless is now helped. Jesus' power over death is shown in that same chapter. Remember how in chapter 6 he sent them out with, without provisions. And they survived just fine. They came back. And remember how he fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. This is all building. They don't understand who this is. They're not, at this point anyway, making much progress. One, they don't understand about the loaves. The second explanation for their astounding disbelief is that their hearts were hardened. Hardened. Now, if you know the story of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, and you know there that it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, you might be tempted to read this in a similar way, that God hardened these guys' hearts in Mark 6. But really, I think we should read this more for their culpability than we should with God's sovereignty in mind. It's more about their culpability. Their hearts were hardened, not passively. Their hearts are hardened by themselves. Their hearts are hard. Their hearts are stubborn, dull, obstinate. They are slow of heart to believe. It's not just a theological statement. It's a condemnation. It's marveling. At their slowness to believe, to understand. We know what they should have understood thus far. We know what we understand as Christians. From this story, we understand that God is here in the flesh in this man, Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. God uniquely rides upon the waves. Job. 9, verse 8, he tramples the waves. That's what Jesus is doing as he walks on the water. What we understand and what they should have understood from Jesus walking on the water is that he has authority over nature, but not just over nature. He has authority over chaos and disaster and threat. As we learned a few weeks ago when looking at that earlier boat in a storm story, In Jewish Old Testament thought, the sea symbolized chaos and disaster and disorder and threat and even evil. It was the embodiment of this broken, out-of-control world. You can just search for words like sea or waves in the Bible it looks specifically in Job in Psalms, and you'll see so many there where waves and sea are not good things. They're threatening things, and God is the only one who can conquer them. That's what Jesus walking on the water and stilling the storm means. It means he's God He has authority over nature. He has authority over chaos, disaster, and threat. He tramples on the waves. And it means also that the kingdom of God has come, that this is the beginning of the end. It doesn't just prove his authority over nature and hence his deity. It also proves that a time of peace is coming, a time of stilling is here. This is what Mark said at the beginning of his book. This is the beginning of the good news, the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the kingdom. This is what Jesus came preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus walking on the water is a symbol of a new age to come, of him conquering evil, him conquering disorder, him conquering brokenness and threats. So that's part of the meaning of the loaves. The kingdom is here. God's new world is breaking through. The new and better Moses has come. The end time feast has started to begin. They didn't understand. Even chapters later in Mark, they still don't understand about the loaves. Turn over to chapter 8. Let's get a little foreshadow of what's, a little foretaste of what's to come. Chapter 8, verse 16, here they're heading out with Jesus, they're traveling, and they began discussing with one another, verse 16, the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And then in chapter 8, earlier in this chapter, the seven, the seven loaves for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Their unbelief is what's astounding. I was talking to my kids last night about, about our study of the gospel according to Mark. And they rightly asked, how could the disciples be so slow to get it? So slow to believe when Jesus is doing all this stuff. And they're right. Mark, the writer here, clearly seems intent, more than the other gospel accounts, clearly seems intent on emphasizing the contrast between Jesus' unprecedented authority in demonstration of power with the disciples' persistent and continued unbelief. But I think there are a few things we have to be careful of when we look back at the disciples from the vantage point that we're in. Let me offer three things that we should keep in mind as we look back to the disciples in their unbelief. One, we should be reminded just how stubborn and obstinate unbelief can be. They are a window into total depravity unbelief Uh, the person you know you've been praying for witnessing to you've presented the gospel now several times through and they haven't yet believed in fact maybe now they're growing more agitated with you you might be tempted to think if jesus would just show up if he would just do a miracle in front of them if they could only see surely they would believe Oh, but so many in these pages didn't. So one, be reminded just how stubborn and obstinate unbelief can be. The disciples are a window into the human heart. Secondly, we shouldn't think that every Christian is in the same boat as these disciples. That every Christian is just as spiritually dim-witted as they were. In these stories early on, we're not. We know more. We know who he is. Hopefully, you don't say, Who then is this that we're talking about? If you're a Christian, you say, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed to him. We're not the same. We're in a different position spiritually and theologically than than these, by God's grace, of course. And thirdly, we have to be careful to remember that there are similarities between their stubborn unbelief and our stubborn forgetfulness. There are some similarities, aren't there? You shouldn't think you're in the same theological boat as the disciples in these early chapters of Mark. And yet, some things should feel eerily familiar Jesus' words of correction to them, his words of comfort to them, are very, very applicable to me so often. Why are you afraid? Have you no faith? Don't be afraid. Just believe. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. It's a bit of a tightrope to walk across these three things, to keep these three things in mind as we walk through the Gospels, but we must. And yet the most amazing thing that we're seeing in this story is Jesus' patience, his kindness, and his gentleness in it all. Isn't it amazing? The disciples see a ghost. That's what they think. Their first thought isn't Jesus is coming. Of course he can walk on the water They think it's a ghost. And then when he says, Don't be afraid, it's I, it's me. Well, they're not any more comforted at all. They're astounded. And yet there's no rebuke here. There's no rebuke. There's less of a rebuke here in Mark 6 than there was in the boat in Mark chapter 4. That's a remarkably patient one, this Jesus. He's so gentle. And that scene, I think, as this moves along here. The eighth thing and last thing is that Jesus presses on. Let's read on back to Mark 6. There's another section here before we end the chapter. Jesus presses on, but not in an in aloof sort of way. He doesn't say to the disciples as they get to shore, now you stay in the boat and I'm going to go find some new disciples. He presses on with them. And really, he presses on with the same stuff that they've been seeing Already and apparently not fully getting. Verse 53, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, laid the sick on their marketplaces and implored him. Oh, did I skip? No, that's right. I thought I skipped two pages here, but just one. To marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. You see, Jesus presses on with the disciples. There's no rebuke. He just goes on to the next thing. It's almost as if he takes them back to the beginning. Many healings. Early on, Mark described in a summary statement Many were being healed. Many were coming to Jesus. Many were bringing their friends and having Jesus touch them and be healed. And here we have another summary statement almost. It's like Jesus is taking them back and showing them again. He gave them two little adventures out in the boat. It's almost like the second time he said, hey, fellas, let's try this again. And they didn't get it. He pleaded with them to not be afraid. He comforted them. It is I. And they still didn't get it. They were astounded. I would really be tempted if I were Jesus at that point, if not very much sooner, to say, I've had it with you guys. This is ridiculous. I mean, I've done every trick in the book. I've shown everything I I can do. I've raised a girl from the dead. I forgave a guy's sins. I mean, I... I walked on water, and you won't believe. But what will it take? And notice, too, the disciples never saying any of this. Did he really walk on the water? Was that a trick? Did he really calm the storm, or did he give us some drugs? They never say that. They know what happened. They just don't yet know who this is. And Jesus just keeps showing them. And he'll press on, not just with them, but he'll press on himself toward a goal the cross. From here on in Mark, the pace picks up. We're just a, a chapter or so away before Jesus starts talking about the cross, chapter and a half. The cross is the goal, and it's there that Jesus died for sins, their sins and yours, ugly sins, persistent sins, stubborn sins, sins of doubt and sins of forgetfulness. Oh, how we are sometimes like the disciples, not in that we say, who then is this, but that we forget who this is. We forget what he said. We are afraid. We forget that he's there. We forget that he's been watching even when we couldn't see him. We forget that he's good to send us into a storm, that he might reveal more of himself later. We forget that he's good to wait. He's good to wait that he might reveal more of himself later. Oh, how we need to remember who he is and what kind of king he is and what he came to do and why we need what he came to do and and what it changes and, and what's still to come. And that's why we're here tonight, to remember. To remember in word, to remember in song, to remember in the symbol of the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus on our behalf for the forgiveness of sins. He came to serve and to be a ransom for many. He came to pay for our sins that we might go free. And free indeed we are, free indeed you are, if you are in Christ, if you know who this is, if you know what he came to do, and if you know that he came to do it for you, and you've put all your eggs in that basket, even imperfectly, and you are his.